Chapter Five of The Wrong Box. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter. The Wrong Box, by Robert Louis Stevenson and Lloyd Osborne. Chapter Five. Mr. Gideon Forsyth and the Gigantic Box. It has been mentioned that at Bournemouth Julia sometimes made acquaintances. It is true she had but a glimpse of them before the doors of John Street closed again upon its captives, but the glimpse was sometimes exhilarating, and the consequent regret was tempered with hope. Among those whom she had thus met a year before was a young barrister of the name of Gideon Forsyth. About three o'clock of the eventful day when the magistrate tampered with the labels, a somewhat moody and distempered ramble had carried Mr. Forsyth to the corner of John Street, and about the same moment Miss Hazeltine was called to the door of number 16 by a thundering double knock. Mr. Gideon Forsyth was a happy enough young man. He would have been happier if he had had more money and less uncle. One hundred and twenty pounds a year was all his store, but his uncle— Mr. Edward Hugh Bloomfield, supplemented this with a handsome allowance, and a great deal of advice, couched in language that would probably have been judged intemperate on board a pirate ship. Mr. Bloomfield was indeed a figure quite peculiar to the days of Mr. Gladstone, what we may call, um, for the lack of an accepted expression, a squire-radical. Having acquired years without experience, he carried into the radical side of politics those noisy after-dinner-table passions which we are more accustomed to connect with Toryism in its severe and senile aspects. To the opinions of Mr. Bradlaugh, in fact, he added the temper and sympathies of that extinct animal, the squire. He admired pugilism, he carried a formidable oaken staff, he was a reverent churchman, and it was hard to know which would have more volcanically stirred his collar, a person who should have defended the established church, or one who should have neglected to attend its celebrations. He had, besides, some levelling catchwords, justly dreaded in the family circle, and when he could not go so far as to declare a step un-English, he might still, and with hardly less effect, denounce it as unpractical. It was under the ban of this lesser excommunication that Gideon had fallen. His views on the study of law had been pronounced unpractical and it had been intimated to him, in a vociferous interview punctuated with the oaken staff, that he must either take a new start and get a brief or two, or prepare to live on his own money. No wonder if Gideon was moody. He had not the slightest wish to modify his present habits, but he would not stand on that, since the recall of Mr. Bloomfield's allowance would revolutionise them still more radically. He had not the least desire to acquaint himself with law— he had looked into it already, and it seemed not to repay attention, but upon this also he was ready to give way. In fact, he would go as far as he could to meet the views of his uncle, the Squire Radical, but there was one part of the programme that appeared independent of his will—how to get a brief. There was the question, and there was another, and a worse. Suppose he got one, should he prove the better man? Suddenly he found his way barred by a crowd. A garishly illuminated van was backed against the curb.
from its open stern, half resting on the street, half supported by some glistening athletes, the end of the largest packing-case in the county of Middlesex might have been seen protruding, while on the steps of the house the burly person of the driver and the slim figure of a young girl stood as upon a stage, disputing. "'It's not for us,' the girl was saying. "'I beg you to take it away. It couldn't get into the house even if you managed to get it out of the van.' "'No, shall leave it on the pavement, then. And M. Finsbury can arrange with the vestry as he likes.' said the vanman. "'But I am not M. Finsbury,' expostulated the girl. "'It doesn't matter who you are,' said the vanman. "'You must allow me to help you, Miss Hazeltine,' said Gideon, putting out his hand. Julia gave a little cry of pleasure. "'Oh, Mr. Forsyth!' she cried. "'I'm so glad to see you. We must get this horrid thing, which can only have come here by mistake, into the house. The man says we'll have to take off the door, or knock two of our windows into one, or be fined by the vestry or customs house or something for leaving our parcels on the pavement.' The men, by this time, had successfully removed the box from the van, had plumped it down on the pavement, and now stood leaning against it, or gazing at the door of number 16, in visible physical distress and mental embarrassment. The windows of the whole street had filled, as if by magic, with interested and entertained spectators. With as thoughtful and scientific an expression as he could assume, Gideon measured the doorway with his cane, while Julia entered his observations in a drawing-book. He then measured the box, and, upon comparing his data, found that there was just enough space for it to enter. Next, throwing off his coat and waistcoat, he assisted the men to take the door from its hinges and lastly, all bystanders being pressed into the service, the packing-case mounted the steps upon some fifteen pairs of wavering legs, scraped loudly grinding through the doorway, and was deposited at length with a formidable convulsion in the far end of the lobby, which it almost blocked. The artisans of this victory smiled upon each other as the dust subsided. It was true they had smashed a bust of Apollo and ploughed the wall into deep ruts, but at least they were no longer one of the public spectacles of London. "'Well, sir,' said the vanman, "'I never see such a job.' Gideon eloquently expressed his concurrence in this sentiment by pressing a couple of sovereigns in the man's hand. "'Oh, make it three, sir, and I'll stand Sam to everybody here,' cried the latter. And this having been done, the whole body of volunteer porters swarmed into the van, which drove off in the direction of the nearest reliable public-house. Gideon closed the door on their departure, and turned to Julia. Their eyes met, the most uncontrollable mirth seized upon them both, and they made the house ring with their laughter. Then curiosity awoke in Julia's mind, and she went and examined the box, and more especially the label. "'This is the strangest thing that's ever happened,' she said, with another burst of laughter. "'It is certainly Morris's handwriting, and I had a letter from him only this morning telling me to expect a barrel. Is there a barrel coming too, do you think, Mr. Forsyth?' "'Statuary, with care, fragile,' read Gideon aloud from the painted warning on the box. "'Then you were told nothing about this?' "'No,' responded Julia. "'Oh, Mr. Forsyth, don't you think we might take a peep at it?' "'Yes, indeed.' cried Gideon. "'Just let me have a hammer. Come down, and I'll show you where it is,' cried Julia. "'The shelf is too high for me to reach.' 
and opening the door of the kitchen stair, she bade Gideon follow her. They found both the hammer and a chisel, but Gideon was surprised to see no sign of a servant. He also discovered that Miss Hazeltine had a very pretty little foot and ankle, and the discovery embarrassed him so much that he was glad to fall at once upon the packing-case. He worked hard and earnestly, and dealt his blows with the precision of a blacksmith, Julia the while standing silently by his side, and regarding rather the workman than the work. He was a handsome fellow. She told herself she had never seen such beautiful arms. And suddenly, as though he had overheard these thoughts, Gideon turned and smiled to her. She too smiled and coloured, and the double change became her so prettily that Gideon forgot to turn away his eyes, and swinging the hammer with a will, discharged a smashing blow on his own knuckles. With admirable presence of mind he crushed down an oath, and substituted the harmless comment, "'Butter fingers!' But the pain was sharp. His nerve was shaken, and after an abortive trial he found he must desist from further operations. In a moment Julia was off to the pantry. In a moment she was back again with a basin of water and a sponge, and had begun to bathe his wounded hand. "'I am dreadfully sorry,' said Gideon, apologetically. "'If I had had any manners I should have opened the box first and smashed my hand afterwards. It feels much better,' he added. "'I assure you it does.' "'And now I think you're well enough to direct operations,' said she. "'Tell me what to do, and I'll be your workman.' "'A very pretty workman,' said Gideon, rather forgetting himself. She turned and looked at him, with a suspicion of a frown, and the indiscreet young man was glad to be able to direct her attention to the packing-case. The bulk of the work had been accomplished, and presently Julia had burst through the last barrier, and disclosed a zone of straw— in a moment they were kneeling side by side, engaged like haymakers. The next they were rewarded with a glimpse of something white and polished, and the next again laid bare an unmistakable marble leg. "'He is surely a very athletic person,' said Julia. "'I never saw anything like it,' responded Gideon. "'His muscles stand out like penny rolls.' Another leg was soon disclosed, and then what seemed to be a third— this resolved itself, however, into a knotted club resting upon a pedestal. "'It's a Hercules!' cried Gideon. "'I might have guessed that from his calf. I'm supposed to be rather partial to statuary. But when it comes to Hercules, the police should interfere.' "'I should say,' he added, glancing with disaffection at the swollen leg, "'that this was about the biggest and the worst in Europe. What in heaven's name can have induced him to come here?' "'I suppose nobody else would have a gift of him,' said Julia. "'And for that matter, I think we could have done without the monster very well.' "'Oh, don't say that,' returned Gideon. "'This has been one of the most amusing experiences of my life.' "'I don't think you'll forget it very soon,' said Julia. "'Your hand will remind you.' "'Well, I suppose I must be going,' said Gideon, reluctantly. "'No,' pleaded Julia. "'Why should you? Stay and have tea with me.' "'If I thought you really wished me to stay,' said Gideon, looking at his hat, "'of course I should only be too delighted.' "'What a silly person you must take me for,' returned the girl. "'Why, of course I do. And besides, I want some cakes for tea, and I've nobody to send. Here is a latch-key.' Gideon put on his hat with alacrity, 
and casting one look at Miss Hazeltine, and another at the legs of Hercules, threw open the door and departed on his errand. He returned with a large bag of the choicest and most tempting of cakes and tartlets, and found Julia in the act of spreading a small tea-table in the lobby. "'The rooms are all in such a state,' she cried, "'that I thought we should be more cosy and comfortable in our own lobby and under our own vine and statuary.' "'Ever so much better,' cried Gideon delightedly. "'Oh, what adorable cream-tarts!' said Julia, opening the bag. "'And the dearest little cherry tartlets, with all the cherries spilling out into the cream.' "'Yes,' said Gideon, concealing his dismay. "'I knew they would mix beautifully. The woman behind the counter told me so.' "'Now,' said Julia, as they began their little festival, "'I'm going to show you Morris's letter. Read it aloud, please, because perhaps there's something I have missed.' Gideon took the letter, and, spreading it out on his knee, read as follows. "'Dear Julia, I write you from Browndean, where we are stopping over for a few days. Uncle was much shaken in that dreadful accident, of which I dare say you have seen the account. Tomorrow I leave him here with John, and come up alone. But before that you will have received a barrel containing specimens for a friend. Do not open it on any account, but leave it in the lobby till I come.' Yours in haste, M. Finsbury. P.S. Be sure and leave the barrel in the lobby. No, said Gideon, there seems to be nothing about the monument. And he nodded, as he spoke, at the marble legs. Miss Hazeltine, he continued, would you mind my asking a few questions? Certainly not, replied Julia. And if you can make me understand why Morris has sent a statue of Hercules instead of a barrel containing specimens for a friend, I shall be grateful till my dying day. And what are specimens for a friend? I haven't a guess, said Gideon. Specimens are usually bits of stone, but rather smaller than our friend the monument. Still, that's not the point. Are you quite alone in this big house? Yes, I am at present, returned Julia. I came up before them to prepare the house and to get another servant, but I couldn't get one I liked. "'Then you are utterly alone,' said Gideon, in amazement. "'Are you not afraid?' "'No,' responded Julia, stoutly. "'I don't see why I should be more afraid than you would be. I am weaker, of course, but when I found I must sleep alone in the house, I bought a revolver, wonderfully cheap, and made the man show me how to use it.' "'And how do you use it?' demanded Gideon, much amused at her courage. "'Why,' said she, with a smile, "'you pull the little trigger thing on top, and then, pointing it very low, for it springs up as you fire, you pull the underneath little trigger thing, and it goes off as well as if a man had done it.' "'And how often have you used it?' asked Gideon. "'Oh, I have not used it yet,' said the determined young lady. "'But I know how, and that makes me wonderfully courageous.' "'especially when I barricade my door with a chest of drawers.' "'I'm awfully glad they're coming back soon,' said Gideon. "'This business strikes me as excessively unsafe. "'If it goes on much longer, I could provide you with a maiden aunt of mine, "'or, or my landlady, if you preferred.' "'Lend me an aunt?' cried Julia. "'Oh, what generosity! "'I begin to think it must have been you that sent the Hercules.' "'Believe me,' cried the young man. I admire you too much to send you such an infamous work of art. Julia was beginning to reply, when they were both startled by a knocking at the door. Oh, Mr. Forsyth! 
"'Don't be afraid, my dear girl,' said Gideon, laying his hand tenderly on her arm. "'I know it's the police,' she whispered. "'They are coming to complain about the statue.' The knock was repeated. It was louder than before, and more impatient. "'It's Morris!' cried Julia, in a startled voice, and she ran to the door and opened it. It was indeed Morris that stood before them. Not the Morris of ordinary days, but a wild-looking fellow, pale and haggard, with bloodshot eyes and a two-days beard upon his chin. "'The barrel!' he cried. "'Where's the barrel, the kindest morning?' And he stared about the lobby, his eyes, as they fell upon the legs of Hercules, literally goggling in his head. "'What is that?' he screamed. "'What is that waxwork?' "'Speak, you fool! What is that? And where's the barrel, the water-butt?' "'No barrel came, Morris,' responded Julia, coldly. "'This is the only thing that has arrived.' "'This!' shrieked the miserable man. "'I never heard of it.' "'It came addressed in your hand,' replied Julia. "'We had nearly to pull the house down to get it in, and that is all I can tell you.' Morris gazed at her in utter bewilderment. He passed his hand over his forehead. He leant against the wall like a man about to faint. Then his tongue was loosed and he overwhelmed the girl with torrents of abuse. Such fire, such directness, such a choice of ungentlemanly language, none had ever before suspected Morris to possess. And the girl trembled, and shrank before his fury. "'You shall not speak to Miss Hazeltine in that way,' said Gideon sternly. "'It is what I will not suffer.' "'I shall speak to the girl as I like,' returned Morris, with a fresh outburst of anger. "'I'll speak to the hussy as she deserves.' "'Not a word more, sir, not one word,' cried Gideon. "'Miss Hazeltine,' he continued, addressing the young girl, "'you cannot stay a moment longer in the same house with this unmanly fellow. Here is my arm. Let me take you where you will be secure from insult.' "'Mr. Forsyth,' returned Julia, "'you are right. I cannot stay here longer, and I am sure I trust myself to an honourable gentleman.' Pale and resolute, Gideon offered her his arm, and the pair descended the steps, followed by Morris, clamouring for the latch-key. Julia had scarcely handed the key to Morris before an empty hansom drove smartly into John Street. It was hailed by both men, and as the cabman drew up his restive horse, Morris made a dash into the vehicle. "'Sixpence above fare!' he cried recklessly. "'Waterloo Station for your life! Sixpence for yourself!' "'Make it a shilling, Governor,' said the man, with a grin. "'The other parties were first. "'A shilling, then,' cried Morris, with the inward reflection that he would reconsider it at Waterloo. The man whipped up his horse, and the hansom vanished from John Street. End of chapter 5《Chapter Six of the Wrong Box This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter. The Wrong Box by Robert Louis Stevenson and Lloyd Osborne. Chapter Six. THE TRIBULATIONS OF MORRIS, PART THE FIRST As the hansom span through the streets of London, Morris sought to rally the forces of his mind, 
The water-butt with the dead body had miscarried, and it was essential to recover it. So much was clear, and if by some blessed good fortune it was still at the station, all might be well. If it had been sent out, however, if it were already in the hands of some wrong person, matters looked more ominous. People who receive unexplained packages are usually keen to have them open. The example of Miss Hazeltine, whom he cursed again, was there to remind him of the circumstances. And if any one had opened the water-butt— "'Oh, Lord!' cried Morris at the thought, and carried his hand to his damp forehead. The private conception of any breach of law is apt to be inspiriting, for the scheme, while yet inchoate, wears dashing and attractive colours. Not so in the least that part of the criminal's later reflections which deal with the police. That useful corps, as Morris now began to think, had scarcely been kept sufficiently in view when he embarked upon his enterprise. "'I must play devilish close,' he reflected, and he was aware of an exquisite thrill of fear in the region of the spine. "'My line or lope?' inquired the cabman through the scuttle. "'My line,' replied Morris, and mentally decided that the man should have his shilling after all. "'It would be madness to attract attention,' thought he, "'but what this thing will cost me first and last begins to be a nightmare.' He passed through the booking-office, and wandered disconsolately on the platform. It was a breathing-space in the day's traffic. There were few people there, and these, for the most part, quiescent on the benches. Morris seemed to attract no remark, which was a good thing, but on the other hand he was making no progress in his quest. Something must be done, something must be risked, every passing instant only added to his dangers. Summoning all his courage, he stopped a porter, and asked him if he remembered receiving a barrel by the morning train. He was anxious to get information, for the barrel belonged to a friend. "'It is a matter of some moment,' he added, "'for it contains specimens.' "'I was not here this morning, sir,' responded the porter, somewhat reluctantly, "'but I'll ask Bill. Do you recollect Bill to have got a barrel from Bournemouth this morning, finding specimens?' "'Oh, don't lie about specimens,' replied Bill. "'But the party has received the barrel I mean raised a sight of trouble.' "'What's that?' cried Morris, in the agitation of the moment, pressing a penny into the man's hand. "'You see, sir, the barrel arrived at one-thirty. No one claimed it till about three, when a small, sickly-looking gentleman, probably a curate, came up, and says he, "'Have you got anything for Pittman, or—' "'Willem Bent Pittman, if I recall it right.' Oh, "'I don't exactly know,' says I. "'But I rather fancy that barrel bears the name.' "'The little man went to a barrel, "'and seemed regular all took aback when he saw the address, "'and then he pitched into us for not having brought what he wanted.' "'I don't give a damn what he wants,' says I to him. "'But if you're Willem Bent Pittman, that's your barrel.' "'Well, and did he take it?' cried the breathless Morris. "'Well, sir,' returned Bill, "'it appears it was a packing-case he was after. The packing-case came, that's sure enough, because it was about the biggest packing-case over our clack eyes on. And this Pitman, he seemed a good deal cut up, and he had the superintendent out, and they got hold of the vanman. He must took the packing-case.' "'Well, sir,' continued Bill, with a smile, "'I never see a man in such a state.' "'Everybody about that van was mortal, by the horses. 
Some gentleman, as well as I could make out, had given the vanman a sov, and so that was where the trouble came in, you see. But what did he say? gasped Morris. Oh, don't know as he said much, sir, said Bill. But he offered to fight this pitman for a pot of beer. He lost his book, too, and the receipts, and his men were all as mortal as himself. Oh, they were all like— And Bill paused for a simile. Like lords. The superintendent sacked them on the spot. Oh, come, but that's not so bad, said Morris, with a bursting sigh. He couldn't tell where he took the packing-case, then. Not he, said Bill. Nor yet nothing else. And what what did Pitton do? asked Morris. Ah, he went off with the barrel in the four-wheeler, very trembling like, replied Bill. I don't believe he's a gentleman as had good health. Well, so the barrel's gone, said Morris, half to himself. You may depend on that, sir, returned the porter, but you had better see a superintendent. Not in the least. It's of no account, said Morris. It only contained specimens. And he walked hastily away. Ensconced once more in a hansom, he proceeded to reconsider his position. Suppose, he thought, suppose he should accept defeat and declare his uncle's death at once. He should lose the tontine, and with that the last hope of his seven thousand eight hundred pounds. But on the other hand, since the shilling to the handsome cabman, he had begun to see that crime was expensive in its course, and since the loss of the water-butt, that it was uncertain in its consequences. Quietly at first, and then with growing heat, he reviewed the advantages of backing out. It involved a loss, but, come to think of it, no such great loss after all, only that of the tontine, which had always been a toss-up, which at bottom he had never really expected. He reminded himself of that eagerly. He congratulated himself upon his constant moderation. He had never really expected the tontine. He had never even very definitely hoped to recover his seven thousand eight hundred pounds, and he had been hurried into the whole thing by Michael's obvious dishonesty. Yes, it would probably be better to draw back from this high-flying venture, settle back in the leather business. "'Oh, good God!' cried Morris, bounding in the hansom like a jack-in-the-box. "'I have not only not gained the tontine, I have lost the leather business.' Such was the monstrous fact. He had no power to sign. He could not draw a cheque for thirty shillings. Until he could produce legal evidence of his uncle's death, he was a penniless outcast. And as soon as he produced it, he had lost the tontine. There was no hesitation on the part of Morris to drop the tontine like a hot chestnut, to concentrate all his forces on the leather business, and the rest of his small but legitimate inheritance was the decision of a single instant, and the next the full extent of his calamity was suddenly disclosed to him. Declare his uncle's death? He couldn't. Since the body was lost, Joseph had, in a legal sense, become immortal. There was no created vehicle big enough to contain Morris and his woes. He paid the handsome off and walked on he knew not whither. I seem to have gone into this business with too much precipitation, he reflected with a deadly sigh. I fear it seems too ramified for a person of my powers of mind. And then a remark of his uncle's flashed into his memory. If you want to think clearly, put it all down on paper. 
"'Well, the old boy knew a thing or two, said Morris. "'I will try, but I don't believe that paper was ever made that would clear my mind.' He entered a place of public entertainment, ordered bread and cheese and writing materials, and sat down before them heavily. He tried the pen. It was an excellent pen. But what was he to write? "'I have it,' cried Morris. "'Robinson Crusoe and the double columns.' He prepared his paper after that classic model, and began as follows. Bad. 1. I have lost my uncle's body. Good. 1. But then Pittman has found it. Stop a bit, said Morris. I am letting the spirit of antithesis run away with me. Let's start again. Bad. 1. I have lost my uncle's body. Good. One. But then I no longer require to bury it. Bad. Two. I have lost the tontine. Good. Two. But I may still save that if Pittman disposes of the body, and if I can find a physician who will stick at nothing. Bad. Three. I have lost the leather business and the rest of my uncle's succession. Good. Three. "'But not if Pittman gives the body up to the police.' "'Oh, but in that case I'd go to jail. I'd forgot that,' thought Morris. "'Indeed, I don't know that I'd better dwell on that hypothesis at all. "'It's all very well to talk of facing the worst. "'But in a case of this kind, a man's duty is to his own nerve. "'Is there any answer to three? "'Is there any possible good sign to such a beastly bungle?' "'There must be, of course, or where would be the use of this double-entry business?' "'By George, I have it!' he exclaimed. "'It's exactly the same as the last.' And he hastily rewrote the passage. "'Bad. Three. I have lost the leather business and the rest of my uncle's succession. Good. Three. But not if I can find a physician who will stick at nothing. This venal doctor seems quite a desideratum.' he reflected. I want him first to give me a certificate that my uncle is dead, so that I may get the leather business, and then that he's alive. But here we are again at the incompatible interests. And he returned to his tabulation. Bad. Four. I have almost no money. Good. Four. But there is plenty in the bank. Bad. Five. Yes, but I can't get the money in the bank. Good, five. But, well, that seems unhappily to be the case. Bad, six. I have left the bill for eight hundred pounds in Uncle Joseph's pocket. Good, six. But if Pittman is only a dishonest man, the presence of this bill may lead him to keep the whole thing dark and throw the body into the new cart. Bad, seven. But if Pittman is dishonest and finds the bill... He will know who Joseph is, and he may blackmail me. Good, Seven. Yes, but if I'm right about Uncle Masterman, I can blackmail Michael. Bad, Eight. But I can't blackmail Michael, which is besides a very dangerous thing to do, until I find out. Good, Eight. Worse luck. Bad, Nine. The leather business will soon want for money for current expenses, and I have none to give. Good, nine. 
But the leather business is a sinking ship. Bad ten. Yes, but it's all the ship I have. Good ten. The fact. Bad eleven. John will soon want money, and I have none to give. Good eleven. Bad twelve. And the venal doctor will want money down. Good twelve. Bad thirteen. And if Pitman is dishonest and don't send me to jail, he will want a fortune. Good thirteen. Oh, this seems to be a very one-sided business, exclaimed Morris. There's not so much in this method as I was led to think. He crumpled the paper up and threw it down, and then the next moment picked it up again and ran it over. It seems it's on the financial point that my position is weakest, he reflected. Is there positively no way of raising the wind? In a vast city like this, and surrounded by all the resources of civilization, it seems not to be conceived. Let us have no more precipitation. Is there nothing I can sell? I collect in a signet. But at the thought of scattering these loved treasures, the blood leapt into Morris's cheek. I would rather die, he exclaimed, and cramming his hat upon his head, strode forth into the streets. I must raise funds, he thought. My uncle being dead, the money in the bank is mine, or would be mine, but but for the cursed injustice that has pursued me ever since I was an orphan in the commercial academy. I know what any other man would do. Any other man in Christendom would forge. Well, I don't know why I call it forging either, when Joseph's dead and the funds are my own. When I think that my uncle is really as dead as mutton, and I can't prove it, my gorge rises at the injustice of the whole affair. Now, I used to feel bitterly about that seven thousand eight hundred pounds. Seems a trifle now. Dear me, why, the day before yesterday I was comparatively happy. And Morris stood on the sidewalk and heaved another sobbing sigh. And there's another thing, he resumed. Can I? Am I able? Why didn't I practice different handwritings when I was young? How a fellow regrets those lost opportunities when he grows up. But there's one comfort. It's not morally wrong. I can try it on with a clear conscience. And even if I was found out, I wouldn't greatly care. Morally, I mean. And then if I succeed, and if Pitman is staunch, there's nothing to do but find a venal doctor. And that ought to be simple enough in a place like London. By all accounts, the town's alive with them. It wouldn't do, of course, to advertise for a corrupt physician. That would be impolitic. Now, I suppose a fellow is simply to spot along the street for a red lamp and herbs in the window, and then you go in and, and, and put it to him plainly. Oh, it seems a delicate step. He was near home now, after many devious wanderings, and turned up John Street. As he thrust his latchkey in the lock, another mortifying reflection struck him to the heart. "'Not even this house is mine till I can prove him dead,' he snarled, and slammed the door behind him, so that the windows in the attic rattled. Night had long fallen. Long ago the lamps and shop-fronts had begun to glitter down the endless streets. The lobby was pitch dark, and as the devil would have it, 
Morris barked his shins and sprawled all his length over the pedestal of Hercules. The pain was sharp. His temper was already thoroughly undermined. By a last misfortune, his hand closed on the hammer as he fell, and in a spasm of childish irritation he turned and struck at the offending statue. There was a splintering crash. "'Oh, Lord, what have I done next?' wailed Morris, and he groped his way to find a candle. "'Yes,' he reflected, as he stood with the light in his hand, and looked upon the mutilated leg, from which about a pound of muscle was detached. "'Yes, I have destroyed a genuine antique. Oh, maybe in for thousands.' And then there sprung up in his bosom a sort of angry hope. "'Let me see,' he thought. "'Julia's got rid of. There's nothing to connect me with that beast Forsyth. The men were all drunk, and, what's better, they've been all discharged.' "'Oh, come, I think this is another case of moral courage. I'll deny all knowledge of the thing.' A moment more, and he stood again before the Hercules, his lips sternly compressed, the coal-axe and the meat-cleaver under his arm. The next he had fallen upon the packing-case. This had been already seriously undermined by the operations of Gideon. A few well-directed blows, and it already quaked and gaped. Yet a few more, and it fell about Morris in a shower of boards, followed by an avalanche of straw. And now the leather merchant could behold the nature of his task. At the first sight his spirit quailed. It was, indeed, no more ambitious a task for de Lesseps, with all his men and horses, to attack the hills of Panama, than for a single slim young gentleman, with no previous experience of labour in a quarry, to measure himself against that bloated monster on his pedestal, and yet the pair were well encountered, on the one side bulk, and on the other genuine heroic fire. "'Down you shall come, you great big ugly brute!' cried Morris aloud, with something of that passion which swept the Parisian mob against the walls of the Bastille. "'Down you shall come this night. I'll have none of you in my lobby.' The face, from its indecent expression, had particularly animated the zeal of our iconoclast, and it was against the face that he began his operations. The great height of the demigod, for he stood a fathom and a half in his stocking feet, offered a preliminary obstacle to this attack. But here, in the first skirmish of battle, intellect already began to triumph over matter. By means of a pair of library steps, the injured householder gained a posture of advantage, and with great swipes of the coal-axe proceeded to decapitate the brute. Two hours later, what had been the erect image of a gigantic coal-porter turned miraculously white was now no more than a medley of disjected members. The quadragenian torso prone against the pedestal, the lascivious countenance leering down the kitchen stairs, the legs, the arms, the hands, and even the fingers scattered broadcast on the lobby floor. Half an hour more, and all the debris had been laboriously carted to the kitchen, and Morris, with a gentle sentiment of triumph, looked round upon the scene of his achievements. Yes, he could deny all knowledge of it now. The lobby— beyond the fact that it was partly ruinous, betrayed no trace of the passage of Hercules. But it was a weary Morris that crept up to bed. His arms and shoulders ached, the palms of his hands burned from the rough kisses of the coal-axe, and there was one smarting finger that stole continually to his mouth. Sleep long delayed to visit the dilapidated hero, 
and with the first peep of day it had again deserted him. The morning, as though to accord with his disastrous fortunes, dawned inclemently. An easterly gale was shouting in the streets, floors of rain angrily assailed the windows, and as Morris dressed, the draught from the fireplace vividly played about his legs. "'I think,' he could not help observing bitterly, "'that with all I have to bear they might have given me decent weather.' There was no bread in the house, for Miss Hazeltine, like all women left to themselves, had subsisted entirely upon cake. But some of this was found, and, along with what the poets call a glass of fair cold water, made up the semblance of a morning meal, and then down he sat undauntedly to his delicate task. Nothing can be more interesting than the study of signatures, written as they are before meals and after, during indigestion and intoxication, written when the signer is trembling for the life of his child, or has come from winning the derby in his lawyer's office, or under the bright eyes of his sweetheart. To the vulgar these seem never the same, but to the expert, the bank clerk, or the lithographer, they are constant quantities, and as recognisable as the North Star to the night watch on deck. To all this Morris was alive. In the theory of that graceful art, in which he was now embarking, our spirited leather merchant was beyond all reproach. But, happily for the investor, forgery is an affair of practice. And as Morris sat surrounded by examples of his uncle's signature, and of his own incompetence, insidious depression stole upon his spirits. From time to time the wind wuthered in the chimney at his back, from time to time there swept over Bloomsbury a squall so dark that he must rise and light the gas. About him was the chill and the mean disorder of a house out of commission, the floor bare, the sofa heaped with books, and accounts enveloped in a dirty tablecloth, the pens rusted, the paper glazed with a thick film of dust, and yet these were but adminicles of mystery, and the true root of his depression lay round him on the table in the shape of misbegotten forgeries. "'It's one of the strangest things I ever heard of,' he complained. "'It almost seems as if it was a talent that I didn't possess.' He went once more minutely through his proofs. "'A clerk would simply jibe at them,' said he. "'Well, there's nothing else but tracing possible.' He waited till a squall had passed, and there came a blink of scowling daylight. Then he went to the window, and in the face of all John Street— traced his uncle's signature. It was a poor thing at best. Ah, "'But it must do,' said he, as he stood gazing woefully upon his handiwork. "'He's dead, anyway.' And he filled up the cheque for a couple of hundred, and sallied forth for the Anglo-Patagonian bank. There, at the desk at which he was accustomed to transact business, and with as much indifference as he could assume, Morris presented the forged cheque to the big, red-bearded Scots teller. The teller seemed to view it with surprise, and as he turned it this way and that, and even scrutinised the signature with a magnifying glass, his surprise appeared to warm into disfavour. Begging to be excused for a moment, he passed away into the rearmost quarters of the bank, whence, after an appreciable interval, he returned again in earnest talk with a superior, an oldish and a baldish, but a very gentlemanly man. A Mr. Morris Finsbury, I believe said the gentlemanly man, fixing Morris with a pair of double eyeglasses. "'That is my name,' said Morris, quavering. "'Is there anything wrong?' 
"'Well, the fact is, Mr. Finsbury, you see, we are rather surprised at receiving this,' said the other, flicking at the cheque. "'There are no effects.' "'No effects?' cried Morris. "'Why, I know myself. There must be eight and twenty hundred pounds, if there's a penny.' Two seven six four, I think,' replied the gentlemanly man. Uh, "'But it was drawn yesterday.' "'Drawn?' cried Morris. "'By your uncle himself, sir.' continued the other. Not only that, but we discounted a bill for him for, let me see, how much was it for, Mr. Bell? Eight hundred, Mr. Judkin, replied the teller. Bent Pitman, cried Morris, staggering back. I beg your pardon, cried Mr. Judkin. It's only an expletive, said Morris. I hope there's nothing wrong, Mr. Finsbury, said Mr. Bell. "'All I can tell you,' said Morris, with a harsh laugh, "'is that the whole thing's impossible. My uncle is at Bournemouth, unable to move.' "'Really?' cried Mr. Bell, and he recovered the cheque from Mr. Judkin. "'But this cheque is dated in London, and to-day,' he observed. "'How do you count for that, sir?' "'Oh, that was a mistake,' said Morris, and a deep tide of colour dyed his face and neck. "'No doubt, no doubt,' said Mr. Judkin, but he looked at his customer inquiringly. "'And,' resumed Morris, "'even if there were no effects, this is a very trifling sum to overdraw. Our, our firm, the name of Finsbury, is surely good enough for such a wretched sum as this.' "'No doubt, Mr. Finsbury,' returned Mr. Judkin, "'and if you insist, I will take it into consideration, but I hardly think—' "'In short, Mr. Finsbury, if there had been nothing else, uh, the signature seems hardly all that we could wish.' "'That's of no consequence,' replied Morris nervously. "'I'll get my uncle to sign another. In fact is,' he went on with a bold stroke, "'my uncle is so far from well at present that he was unable to sign this cheque without assistance, and I feel that my holding the pen for him may have made the difference in the signature.' Mr. Judkin shot a keen glance into Morris's face, and then turned and looked at Mr. Bell. "'Well,' he said, "'it seems as if we had been victimised by a swindler. Pray tell Mr. Finsbury we shall put detectives on at once. As for this cheque of yours, I regret that, owing to the way it was signed, the bank can hardly consider it, much less business-like.' And he returned the cheque across the counter. Morris took it up mechanically. He was thinking of something very different. "'In a in a case of this kind,' he began, "'I believe the loss falls on us. I mean upon my uncle and myself.' "'It does not, sir,' replied Mr. Bell. "'The bank is responsible, and the bank will either recover the money or refund it. You may depend on that.' Morris's face fell. Then it was visited by another gleam of hope. "'I tell you what,' he said, you leave this entirely in my hands. I'll sift the matter. I've an idea at any rate. And detectives, he added appealingly, are so expensive. The bank would not hear of it, returned Mr. Judkin. The bank stands to lose between three and four thousand pounds. It will spend as much more if necessary. An undiscovered forger is a permanent danger. "'We shall clear it up to the bottom, Mr. Finsbury. Set your mind at rest on that.' "'Then I'll stand the loss,' said Morris boldly. "'I urge you to abandon the search.' 
He was determined that no inquiry should be made. "'I beg your pardon,' returned Mr. Judkin, "'but we have nothing to do with you in this matter, which is one between your uncle and ourselves. If he should take this opinion, and will either come here himself, or let me see him in his sick-room—' "'Quite impossible,' cried Morris. "'Well, then, you see,' said Mr. Judkin, "'how my hands are tied. The whole affair must go at once into the hands of the police.' Morris mechanically folded the cheque and restored it to his pocket-book. "'Good morning,' said he, and scrambled somehow out of the bank. Oh, "'I don't know what they suspect,' he reflected. "'I can't make them out. Their whole behaviour is thoroughly unbusinesslike. But it doesn't matter. All's up with everything. The money has been paid, the police are on the scent. In two hours that idiot Pitman will be nabbed, and the whole story of the dead body in the evening papers.' If he could have heard what passed in the bank after his departure, he would have been less alarmed, perhaps more mortified. "'That was a curious affair, Mr. Bell,' said Mr. Judkin. "'Yes, sir,' said Mr. Bell. "'But I think we have given him a fright.' "'Oh, we shall hear no more of Mr. Morris Finsbury,' returned the other. "'It was a first attempt, and the House have dealt with us so long that I was anxious to deal gently. But I suppose, Mr. Bell, there can be no mistake about yesterday. It was old Mr. Finsbury himself.' "'There could be no possible doubt of that.' said Mr. Bell, with a chuckle. "'He explained to me the principles of banking.' "'Well, well,' said Mr. Judkin. "'The next time he calls, ask him to step into my room. It is only proper that he should be warned.'" End of chapter 6《Chapter Seven of The Wrong Box》This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter The Wrong Box by Robert Louis Stevenson and Lloyd Osborne Chapter Seven in which William Dent Pitman takes legal advice. Norfolk Street, King's Road, jocularly known among Mr. Pitman's lodgers as Norfolk Island, is neither a long, a handsome, nor a pleasing thoroughfare. Dirty, undersized maids-of-all-work issue from it in pursuit of beer, or linger on its sidewalk listening to the voice of love. The cat's-meat man passes twice a day, an occasional organ-grinder wanders in, and wanders out again, disgusted. In holiday-time the street is the arena of the young bloods of the neighbourhood, and the householders have an opportunity of studying the manly art of self-defence. And yet Norfolk Street has one claim to be respectable, for it contains not a single shop, unless you count the public-house at the corner, which is really in the King's Road. The door of number 7 bore a brass plate, inscribed with the legend W. D. Pitman, Artist. It was not a particularly clean brass plate, nor was number seven itself a particularly inviting place of residence, and yet it had a character of its own, such as may well quicken the pulse of the reader's curiosity, for here was the home of an artist, and a distinguished artist too, highly distinguished by his ill success, which had never been made the subject of an article in the illustrated magazines,
No wood-engraver had ever reproduced a corner in the back drawing-room, or the studio mantelpiece of number seven. No young lady author had ever commented on the unaffected simplicity with which Mr. Pittman received her in the midst of his treasures. It is an omission I would gladly supply, but our business is only with the backward parts and abject rear of this aesthetic dwelling. Here was a garden, boasting a dwarf fountain, that never played, in the centre. A few grimy-looking flowers in pots, two or three newly planted trees, which the spring of Chelsea visited without noticeable consequence, and two or three statues after the antique, representing satyrs and nymphs in the worst possible style of sculptured art. On one side the garden was overshadowed by a pair of crazy studios, usually hired out to the more obscure and youthful practitioners of British art. Opposite these, another lofty outbuilding, somewhat more carefully finished, and boasting of a communication with the house and a private door on the back lane, enshrined the multifarious industry of Mr. Pittman. All day, it is true, he was engaged in the work of education at a seminary for young ladies, but the evenings at least were his own, and these he would prolong far into the night, now dashing off a landscape with waterfall in oil, now a volunteer bust in marble, as he would gently but proudly observe, of some public character, now stooping his chisel to a mere nymph for a gas-bracket on a stair, sir or a life-size infant Samuel, for a religious nursery. Mr. Pittman had studied in Paris, and he had studied in Rome, supplied with funds by a fond parent, who went subsequently bankrupt in consequence of a fall in corsets. And though he was never thought to have the smallest modicum of talent, it was at one time supposed that he had learned his business— Eighteen years of what is called tuition had relieved him of the dangerous knowledge. His artistic lodgers would sometimes reason with him. They would point out to him how impossible it was to paint by gaslight, or to sculpture life-size nymphs without a model. "'I know that,' he would reply. "'No one in Norfolk Street knows it better, and if I were rich I should certainly employ the best models in London.' "'But, being poor, I have taught myself to do without them. "'An occasional model would only disturb my ideal conception of the figure "'and be a positive impediment in my career. "'As for painting by artificial light,' he would continue, "'that is simply a knack I have found it necessary to acquire, "'my days being engrossed in the work of tuition.' "'At the moment when we must present him to our readers,' Pittman was in his studio alone by the dying light of the October day. He sat, sure enough, with unaffected simplicity, in a Windsor chair, his low-crowned black felt hat by his side, a dark, weak, harmless, pathetic little man, clad in the hue of mourning, his coat longer than is usual with the laity, his neck enclosed in a collar without a parting, his neckcloth pale in hue and simply tied. The whole outward man, except for a pointed beard, tentatively clerical. There was a thinning on the top of Pittman's head, and there were silver hairs at Pittman's temple. Poor gentleman, he was no longer young, and years and poverty and humble ambition thwarted make a cheerless lot. In front of him, in the corner by the door, there stood a portly barrel, 
and let him turn them where he might, it was always to the barrel that his eyes and his thoughts returned. "'Should I open it? Should I return it? Should I communicate with Mr. Semitopolis at once?' he wondered. "'No,' he concluded finally, "'nothing without Mr. Finsbury's advice.' And he arose, and produced a shabby leathern desk. It opened without the formality of unlocking, and displayed the thick, cream-coloured note-paper, on which Mr. Pitman was in the habit of communicating with the proprietors of schools, and the parents of his pupils. He placed the desk on the table by the window, and taking a saucer of Indian ink from the chimney-piece, laboriously composed the following letter. "'My dear Mr. Finsbury,' it ran, "'would it be presuming on your kindness if I asked you to pay me a visit here this evening?' It is in no trifling matter that I invoke your valuable assistance, for need I say more than it concerns the welfare of Mr. Semitopolis's statue of Hercules. I write you in great agitation of mind, for I have made all inquiries, and greatly fear that this work of ancient art has been mislaid. I labour besides under another perplexity, not unconnected with the first. Pray excuse the inelegance of this scrawl, and believe me yours in haste, William D. Pittman. Armed with this, he set forth, and rang the bell of number 233 King's Road, the private residence of Michael Finsbury. He had met the lawyer at a time of great public excitement in Chelsea. Michael, who had a sense of humour and a great deal of careless kindness in his nature, followed the acquaintance up, and having come to laugh, remained to drop into a contemptuous kind of friendship. By this time, which was four years after the first meeting, Pitman was the lawyer's dog. Oh, "'No,' said the elderly housekeeper, who opened the door in person, "'Mr. Michael's not in yet. But you're looking terrible poorly, Mr. Pitman. Take a glass of sherry, sir, to cheer ye up.' Oh, "'No, I thank you, ma'am,' replied the artist. "'It is very good in you, but I scarcely feel in sufficient spirits for sherry. "'Just give Mr. Finsbury this note, and ask him to look round. "'To the door in the lane, you will please tell him. "'I shall be in the studio all evening.' "'And he turned again into the street, and walked slowly homeward. "'A hairdresser's window caught his attention, "'and he stared long and earnestly at the proud, high-born, waxen lady in evening dress.' who circulated in the centre of the show. The artist woke in him in spite of his troubles. "'It's all very well to run down the men who make these things,' he cried. "'But there's a something, a, there's a haughty, indefinable something about that figure. It's what I tried for in my Empress Eugenie,' he added, with a sigh. And he went home, reflecting on the quality. "'They don't teach you that direct appeal in Paris,' he thought. "'It's British. Come, I am going to sleep. I must wake up. I must aim higher. Aim higher!' cried the little artist to himself. All through his tea and afterward, as he was giving his eldest boy a lesson on the fiddle, his mind dwelt no longer on his troubles, but he was wrapped into the better land. And no sooner was he at liberty than he hastened with positive exhilaration to his studio. Not even the sight of the barrel could entirely cast him down. He flung himself with rising zest into his work, a bust of Mr. Gladstone from a photograph, 
turned, with extraordinary success, the difficulty of the back of the head, for which he had no documents beyond a hazy recollection of a public meeting, delighted himself by his treatment of the collar, and was only recalled to the cares of life by Michael Finsbury's rattle at the door. "'Well, what's wrong?' said Michael, advancing to the grate, where, knowing his friend's delight in a bright fire, Mr. Pittman had not spared the fuel. "'I suppose you've come to grief somehow.' "'There is no expression strong enough,' said the artist. "'Mr. Semitopolis's statue has not turned up, and I am afraid I shall be answerable for the money. But I think nothing of that. What I fear, my dear Mr. Finsbury, what I fear, alas, that I should have to say it, is exposure. The Hercules was to be smuggled out of Italy.' a thing positively wrong, a thing which a man of my principles and in my responsible position should have taken, as I now see too late, and no part whatever. "'This sounds like very serious work,' said the lawyer. "'It will require a great deal of drink, Pittman.' "'I took the liberty of a, in short, being prepared for you,' replied the artist, pointing to the kettle, a bottle of gin, a lemon, and glasses.' Michael mixed himself a grog, and offered the artist a cigar. "'No, thank you,' said Pittman. "'I used occasionally to be rather partial to it, but the smell is so disagreeable about the clothes.' "'All right,' said the lawyer. "'I'm comfortable now. Unfold your tale.' At some length Pittman set forth his sorrows. He had gone to-day to Waterloo, expecting to receive the colossal Hercules, and he had received instead a barrel not big enough to hold Discobolus. Yet the barrel was addressed in the hand, with which he was perfectly acquainted, of his Roman correspondent. What was stranger still, a case had arrived by the same train, large enough and heavy enough to contain the Hercules, and this case had been taken to an address now undiscoverable. The vanman, I regret to say it, had been drinking, and his language was such as I could never bring myself to repeat. He was at once discharged by the superintendent of the line, who behaved most properly throughout, and is to make inquiries at Southampton. In the meantime, what was I to do? I left my address and brought the barrel home, but— Remembering an old adage, I determined not to open it except in the presence of my lawyer. "'Is that all?' asked Michael. "'I don't see any cause to worry. The Hercules has stuck upon the road. It will drop in to-morrow or the day after. And as for the barrel, depend upon it. It's a testimonial from one of your young ladies, and probably contains oysters.' "'Oh, don't speak so loud!' cried the little artist. It would cost me my place if I were heard to speak lightly of the young ladies. And besides, why oysters from Italy? And why should they come to me addressed in Signor Riccardi's hand? Well, let's have a look at it, said Michael. Let's roll it forward to the light. The two men rolled the barrel from the corner, and stood it on end before the fire. It's heavy enough to be oysters, "'remarked Michael judiciously. "'Shall we open it at once?' inquired the artist, who had grown decidedly cheerful under the combined effects of company and gin, and without waiting for a reply he began to strip as if for a prize-fight, tossed his clerical collar in the waste-paper basket, hung his clerical coat upon a nail, 
and with a chisel in one hand and a hammer in the other, struck the first blow of the evening. "'That's the style, William Dent,' cried Michael. "'There's fire for your money. It may be a romantic visit from one of the young ladies, a sort of Cleopatra business. Have a care, and don't stave in Cleopatra's head.' But the sight of Pitman's alacrity was infectious. The lawyer could sit still no longer. Tossing his cigar into the fire, he snatched the instrument from the unwilling hands of the artist, and fell to himself. Soon the sweat stood in beads upon his large, fair brow. His stylish trousers were defaced with iron rust, and the state of his chisel testified to misdirected energies. A cask is not an easy thing to open, even when you set about it the right way. When you set about it wrongly, the whole structure must be resolved into its elements. Such was the course pursued alike by the artist and the lawyer. Presently the last hoop had been removed, a couple of smart blows tumbled the staves upon the ground, and what had once been a barrel was no more than a confused heap of broken and distorted boards. In the midst of these a certain dismal something, swathed in blankets, remained for an instant upright, and then toppled to one side and heavily collapsed before the fire. Even as the thing subsided, an eyeglass tinkled to the floor, and rolled towards the screaming pitman. "'Hold your tongue,' said Michael. He dashed to the house-door and locked it. Then, with a pale face and bitten lip, he drew near, pulled aside a corner of the swathing blanket, and recoiled, shuddering. There was a long silence in the studio. "'Now, tell me,' said Michael, in a low voice, "'had you any hand in it?' And he pointed to the body. The little artist could only utter broken and disjointed sounds. Michael poured some gin into a glass. "'Drink that,' he said. "'Don't be afraid of me. I'm your friend, through thick and thin.' Pitman put the liquor down untasted. Oh, "'I swear before God!' he said. This is another mystery to me. In my worst fears I never dreamt of such a thing. I would not lay a finger on a sucking infant. "'That's all square,' said Michael, with a sigh of huge relief. "'I believe you, old boy.' And he shook the artist warmly by the hand. "'I thought for a moment,' he added, with rather a ghastly smile, I thought for a moment you might have made away with Mr. Ceritopolis. "'It would make no difference if I had,' groaned Pitman. "'All is at an end for me. There's a writing on the wall.' "'To begin with,' said Michael, "'let's get him out of sight. For to be quite plain with you, Pitman, I don't like your friend's appearance.' And with that the lawyer shuddered. "'Where can we put it?' "'You might put it in the closet there, if you could bear to touch it,' answered the artist. "'Somebody has to do it, Pitman,' returned the lawyer, "'and it seems as if it had to be me. "'You go over to the table, turn your back, and mix me a grog. "'That's a fair division of labour. About ninety seconds later the closet door was heard to shut. "'There,' observed Michael, "'that's more homelike.' "'You can turn now, my pallid Pitman. Is this the grog?' he ran on. "'Heaven, forgive you, it's a lemonade.' "'But, oh, Finsbury, what are we to do with it?' wailed the artist, laying a clutching hand upon the lawyer's arm. "'Do with it?' repeated Michael. "'Bury it in one of your flower-beds. 
and erect one of your own statues for a monument. I tell you, we should look devilish romantic, shovelling out the sod by the moon's pale ray. Here, put some gin in this. "'I beg of you, Mr. Finsbury, do not trifle with my misery,' cried Pittman. "'You see before you a man who has been all his life, I do not hesitate to say it, eminently respectable. Even in this solemn hour I can lay my hand upon my heart without a blush, except on the really trifling point of the smuggling of the Hercules, and even of that I now humbly repent.' My life has been entirely fit for publication. I never feared the light, cried the little man. And now, now— Cheer up, old boy, said Michael. I assure you we should count this little contretemps a trifle at the office. It's the sort of thing that may occur to any one. And if you're perfectly sure you had no hand in it— What language am I to find? began Pittman. "'Oh, I'll do that part of it,' interrupted Michael. "'You have no experience. "'But the point is this. "'If, or rather since, you know nothing of the crime, "'since the party in the closet is neither your father, "'nor your brother, nor your creditor, nor your mother-in-law, "'nor what they call an injured husband—' "'Oh, my dear sir!' interjected Pittman, horrified. "'Since, in short,' continued the lawyer, you had no possible interest in the crime. We have a perfectly free field before us, and a safe game to play. Indeed, the problem is really entertaining. It is one I have long contemplated in the light of an A.B. case. Here it is, at last, under my hand in specie, and I mean to pull you through. Do you hear that? I mean to pull you through. Let me see. It's a long time since I have had what I call a genuine holiday— "'I'll send an excuse to-morrow to the office. "'We'd best be lively,' he added significantly, "'for we must not spoil the market for the other man.' "'What do you mean?' inquired Pittman. "'What other man? The inspector of police?' "'Damn the inspector of police,' remarked his companion. "'If you won't take the short-cut and bury this in your back garden, "'we must find someone who will bury it in his.' "'We must place the affair, in short, in the hands of someone with fewer scruples and more resources.' "'A private detective, perhaps?' suggested Pittman. "'There are times when you fill me with pity,' observed the lawyer. "'By the way, Pittman,' he added, in another key, "'I have always regretted that you have no piano in this den of yours. "'Even if you don't play yourself, your friends might like to entertain themselves with a little music while you were muddling.' "'I shall get one at once, if you like,' said Pittman nervously, anxious to please. "'I play the fiddle a little as it is.' "'I know you do,' said Michael. "'But what's the fiddle, above all as you play it? "'What you want is polyphonic music. "'And I tell you what it is. "'Since it's too late for you to buy a piano, I'll give you mine.' Uh, "'Thank you,' said the artist, blankly. "'You will give me yours?' "'I'm sure it's very good in you.' "'Yes, I'll give you mine,' continued Michael, "'for the inspector of police to play on "'while his men are digging up your back garden.' Pittman stared at him in pained amazement. "'No, I'm not insane,' Michael went on. "'I'm playful, but quite coherent. "'See here, Pittman, follow me one half-minute. 
I mean to profit by the refreshing fact that we are really and truly innocent. Nothing but the presence of the, you know what, connects us with the crime. Once let us get rid of it, no matter how, and there is no possible clue to trace us by. Well, I give you my piano. We'll bring it round this very night. Tomorrow we rip the fittings out, deposit the, now friend, inside, plump the hole on the cart, and carry it to the chambers of a young gentleman whom I know by sight. Whom do you know by sight? repeated Pitman. And what is more to the purpose, continued Michael, whose chambers I know better than he does himself. A friend of mine, I call him my friend for brevity, he is now, I understand, in Demerara, and most likely in jail, was the previous occupant. I defended him, and I got him off, too, all saved but honour. His assets were nil, but he gave me what he had, poor gentleman, and along with the rest, the key of his chambers. It's there that I propose to leave the piano, and, shall we say, Cleopatra? It seems very wild, said Pitman. "'And what will become of the poor young gentleman whom you know by sight?' "'It will do him good,' said Michael, cheerily. "'Just what he wants to steady him.' "'But, my dear sir, he might be involved in a charge of—' "'Charge of murder,' gulped the artist. "'Well, he'll be just where we are,' returned the lawyer. "'He's innocent, you see. "'What hangs people, my dear Pitman, is the unfortunate circumstance of guilt.' "'But indeed, indeed,' pleaded Pitman, "'the whole scheme appears to me so wild. "'Wouldn't it not be safer, after all, just to send for the police?' "'And make a scandal?' inquired Michael. "'The Chelsea mystery. Alleged innocence of Pitman. "'How would that do at the seminary?' "'It would imply my discharge,' admitted the drawing-master. I, "'I cannot deny that.' "'And besides,' said Michael, "'I'm not going to embark in such a business and have no fun for my money.' "'Oh, my dear sir, is that a proper spirit?' cried Pitman. "'Oh, I only said that to cheer you up,' said the unabashed Michael. "'Nothing like a little judicious levity. "'But it's quite needless to discuss. "'If you mean to follow my advice, come on and let us get the piano at once. "'If you don't, just drop me the word.' and I'll leave you to deal with the whole thing according to your better judgment. You know perfectly well that I depend on you entirely, returned Pitman. But, oh, what a night is before me with that horror in my studio! How am I to think of it on my pillow? Well, you know, my piano will be there too, said Michael. That'll raise the average. An hour later a cart came up the lane, and the lawyer's piano— a momentous Broadwood Grand, was deposited in Mr. Pittman's studio. End of chapter 7「Chapter 8 of The Wrong Box This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter The Wrong Box By Robert Louis Stevenson and Lloyd Osborne Chapter 8 
in which Michael Finsbury enjoys a holiday. Punctually at eight o'clock next morning, the lawyer rattled, according to previous appointment, on the studio door. He found the artist sadly altered for the worse, bleached, bloodshot, and chalky, a man upon wires, the tail of his haggard eye still wandering to the closet. Nor was the professor of drawing less inclined to wonder at his friend. Michael was usually attired in the height of fashion, with a certain mercantile brilliancy best described, perhaps, as stylish. Nor could anything be said against him as a rule, but he looked a trifle too like a wedding-guest to be quite a gentleman. Today he had fallen altogether from those heights. He wore a flannel shirt of washed-out shepherd's tartan, and a suit of reddish tweeds, of the colour known to tailors as heather mixture. His neckcloth was black, and tied loosely in a sailor's knot. A rusty ulster partly concealed these advantages, and his feet were shod with rough walking-boots. His hat was an old soft felt, which he removed with a flourish as he entered. "'Here I am, William Dent,' he cried, and drawing from his pocket two little wisps of reddish hair, he held them to his cheeks like side-whiskers, and danced about the studio with the filmy graces of a ballet-girl. Pitman laughed sadly. "'I should never have known you,' said he. "'Nor were you intended to,' returned Michael, replacing his false whiskers in his pocket. "'Now we must overhaul you and your wardrobe, and disguise you up to the nines.' "'Disguise!' cried the artist. "'Must I indeed disguise myself? Has it come to that?' "'My dear creature,' returned his companion, "'disguise is the spice of life.' "'What is life?' passionately exclaimed the French philosopher, "'without the pleasures of disguise. "'I don't say it's always good taste, and I know it's unprofessional, "'but what's the odds, downhearted drawing-master? "'It has to be. "'We have to leave a false impression on the minds of many persons, "'and in particular on the mind of Mr. Gideon Forsyth, "'the young gentleman I know by sight, "'if he should have the bad taste to be at home.' "'If he be at home?' faltered the artist. "'That would be the end of all.' "'Won't matter a dee,' returned Michael airily. "'Let me see your clothes, and I'll make a new man of you in a jiffy.' In the bedroom, to which he was at once conducted, Michael examined Pitman's poor and scanty wardrobe with a humorous eye, picked out a short jacket of black alpaca, and pleasantly added to that a pair of summer trousers, which somehow took his fancy as incongruous. Then, with the garments in his hand, he scrutinised the artist closely. "'I don't like that clerical collar,' he remarked. "'Have you nothing else?' The professor of drawing pondered for a moment, and then brightened. "'I have a pair of low-necked shirts,' he said, "'that I used to wear in Paris as a student. They are rather loud.' "'The very thing,' ejaculated Michael. "'You'll look perfectly beastly. Here are spats, too,' he continued." drawing forth a pair of those offensive little gaiters, must have spats. And now you jump into these and whistle the tune at the window for, say, three-quarters of an hour. After that you can rejoin me on the field of glory. So saying, Michael returned to the studio. It was the morning of the easterly gale. The wind blew shrilly among the statues in the garden, and drove the rain upon the skylight in the studio ceiling and at about the same moment of the time when Morris attacked the hundredth version of his uncle's signature in Bloomsbury, Michael, in Chelsea, began to rip the wires out of the Broadwood Grand. Three-quarters of an hour later, Pitman was admitted to find the closet door standing open, 
the closet untenanted, and the piano discreetly shut. "'It's a remarkably heavy instrument,' observed Michael, and turned to consider his friend's disguise. "'You must shave off that beard of yours,' he said. "'My beard?' cried Pittman. "'I cannot shave my beard. I, I cannot tamper with my appearance. My principals would object.' They hold very strong views as to the appearance of the professors. Young ladies are considered so romantic. My beard was regarded as quite a feature when I went about the place. It was regarded, said the artist, with rising colour, it was regarded as unbecoming. You can let it grow again, returned Michael, and then you'll be so precious ugly that they'll raise your salary. But I don't want to be ugly, cried the artist. Don't be an ass said Michael, who hated beards, and was delighted to destroy one. "'Off with it, like a man.' "'Of course, if you insist,' said Pitman. And then he sighed, fetched some hot water from the kitchen, and, setting a glass upon his easel, first clipped his beard with scissors, and then shaved his chin. He could not conceal from himself, as he regarded the result, that his last claims to manhood had been sacrificed. But Michael seemed delighted. "'A new man, I declare,' he cried. "'When I give you the window-glass spectacles I have in my pocket, "'you'll be the beau-ideal of a French commercial traveller. Pitman did not reply, but continued to gaze disconsolately on his image in the glass. "'Do you know,' asked Michael, "'what the Governor of South Carolina said to the Governor of North Carolina?' "'It's a long time between drinks,' observed that powerful thinker. "'and if you will put your hand into the top left-hand pocket of my ulster, "'I have an impression you will find a flask of brandy.' "'Thank you, Pitman,' he added, as he filled out a glass for each. "'Now you will give me the news of this.' "'The artist reached out his hand for the water-jug, "'but Michael arrested the movement. "'Not if you went upon your knees,' he cried. "'This is the finest liqueur, brandy in Great Britain.' "'Pitman put his lips to it set it down again, and sighed. "'Well, I must say, you're the poorest companion for a holiday,' cried Michael. "'If that's all you know of brandy, you shall have no more of it. And while I finish the flask, you may as well begin business. Come to think of it,' he broke off, "'I have made an abominable error. You should have ordered the cart before you were disguised. Why, Pitman, what the devil's the use of you? Why couldn't you have reminded me of that?' "'I never even knew there was a card to be ordered,' said the artist. "'But I can take off the disguise again,' he suggested, eagerly. "'You would find it rather a bother to put on your beard,' observed the lawyer. "'No, it's a false step, the sort of thing that hangs people,' he continued, with eminent cheerfulness, as he sipped his brandy. "'And it can't be retraced now. Off to the mews with you. Make all the arrangements. They're to take the piano from here.' "'Cart it to Victoria, and dispatch it thence by rail to Cannon Street, "'to lie till called for in the name of Fortune de Boiscoby.' "'Isn't that rather an awkward name?' pleaded Pitman. "'Awkward?' cried Michael scornfully. "'It would hang us both. "'Brown is both safer and easier to pronounce. "'Call it Brown.' "'I wish,' said Pitman, "'for my sake I wish you wouldn't talk so much of hanging.' "'Talking about it's nothing, my boy.' "'returned Michael. "'But take your hat and be off, "'and mind and pay everything beforehand.' "'Left to himself, "'the lawyer turned his attention for some time "'exclusively to the liqueur brandy, 
and his spirits, which had been pretty fair all morning, now prodigiously rose. He proceeded to adjust his whiskers finally before the glass. "'Devilish rich,' he remarked, as he contemplated his reflection. "'I look like a purser's mate.' And at that moment the window-glass spectacles, which he had hitherto destined for Pittman, flashed into his mind. He put them on, and fell in love with the effect. "'Just what I required,' he said. "'I wonder what I look like now. A humorous novelist, I should think.' And he began to practice divers characters of walk, naming them to himself as he proceeded. "'Walk of a humorous novelist? But that would require an umbrella. Walk of a purser's mate? Walk of an Australian colonist, revisiting the scenes of childhood. Walk of sepoy colonel? Ditto, ditto. And in the midst of the sepoy colonel, which was an excellent assumption, although inconsistent with the style of his make-up, his eye lighted on the piano. This instrument was made to lock, both at the top and at the keyboard, but the key of the latter had been mislaid. Michael opened it, and ran his fingers over the dumb keys. "'Fine instrument! Full rich tone!' he observed, and he drew in a seat. When Mr. Pittman returned to the studio, he was appalled to observe his guide, philosopher, and friend performing miracles of execution on the silent grand. "'Heaven help me!' thought the little man. "'I fear he has been drinking. Mr. Finsbury!' he said aloud. And Michael, without rising, turned upon him a countenance somewhat flushed, encircled with the bush of the red whiskers, and bestridden by the spectacles. "'Capriccio in B-flat on the departure of a friend,' said he, continuing his noiseless evolution. Indignation awoke in the mind of Pittman. "'Those spectacles were to be mine,' he cried. "'They are an essential part of my disguise.' "'I'm going to wear them myself,' replied Michael and he added, with some show of truth, "'There would be a devil of a lot of suspicion aroused if we both wore spectacles.' Uh, "'Well,' said the assenting Pitman, "'I rather counted on them, but, of course, if you insist, and at any rate, here is the cart at the door.' While the men were at work, Michael concealed himself in the closet among the debris of the barrel and the wires of the piano and as soon as the coast was clear, the pair sallied forth by the lane, jumped into a hansom in the King's Road, and were driven rapidly towards town. It was still cold and raw and boisterous. The rain beat strongly in their faces. But Michael refused to have the glass let down. He had now suddenly donned the character of Cicerone, and pointed out and lucidly commented on the sights of London as they drove. "'My dear fellow,' he said, "'you don't seem to know anything of your native city. "'Suppose we visited the tower. "'No? "'Well, perhaps it's a trifle out of our way. "'But anyway, here, cabby, drive round by Trafalgar Square.' "'And on that historic battlefield he insisted on drawing up "'while he criticised the statues, "'and gave the artist many curious details, quite new to history, "'of the lives of the celebrated men they represented.' It would be difficult to express what Pittman suffered in the cab. Cold, wet, terror in the capital degree, a grounded distrust of the commander under whom he served, a sense of imprudency in the matter of the low-necked shirt, a bitter sense of the decline and fall involved in the deprivation of his beard. All these were among the ingredients of the bowl. To reach the restaurant, for which they were deviously steering, was the first relief.
To hear Michael bespeak a private room was a second and a still greater. Nor, as they mounted the stair under the guidance of an unintelligible alien, did he fail to note with gratitude the fewness of the persons present, or the still more cheering fact that the greater part of these were exiles from the land of France. It was thus a blessed thought that none of them would be connected with the seminary, for even the French professor, though admittedly a papist, he could scarce imagine frequenting so rakish an establishment. The alien introduced them into a small bare room with a single table, a sofa, and a dwarfish fire, and Michael called promptly for more coals and a couple of brandies and sodas. "'Oh, no,' said Pitman. "'Surely not. No, no more to drink.' "'I don't know what you would be at,' said Michael plaintively. "'It is positively necessary to do something, and one shouldn't smoke before meals. I thought that was understood. You seem to have no idea of hygiene.' and he compared his watch with the clock upon the chimney-piece. Pitman fell into bitter musing. Here he was, ridiculously shorn, absurdly disguised, in the company of a drunken man in spectacles, and waiting for a champagne luncheon in a restaurant painfully foreign. What would his principals think if they could see him? What if they knew his tragic and deceitful errand? From these reflections he was aroused by the entrance of the alien with the brandies and sodas. Michael took one, and bade the waiter pass the other to his friend. Pitman waved it from him with his hand. Oh, "'Don't let me lose all self-respect,' he said. "'Anything to oblige a friend,' returned Michael. "'But I am not going to drink alone. Here,' he added to the waiter, "'you take it.' And then, touching glasses, "'The health of Mr. Gideon Forsyth said he. "'Mr. Gidden Borsai,' replied the waiter, and he tossed off the liquor in four gulps. "'Have another,' said Michael, with undisguised interest. "'I never saw a man drink faster. It restores one's confidence in the human race.' But the waiter excused himself politely, and, assisted by someone from without, began to bring in lunch. Michael made an excellent meal which he washed down with a bottle of Heidsieck's dry monopole. As for the artist, he was far too uneasy to eat, and his companion flatly refused to let him share in the champagne unless he did. "'One of us must stay sober,' remarked the lawyer, "'and I won't give you champagne on the strength of a leg of grouse. I have to be cautious,' he added confidentially. "'One drunken man, excellent business. Two drunken men, all my eye.' On the production of the coffee, and departure of the waiter, Michael might have been observed to make portentous efforts after gravity of mien. He looked his friend in the face, one eye perhaps a trifle off, and addressed him thickly but severely. "'Enough of this fooling,' was his not inappropriate exordium. "'To business. Mark me closely. I am an Australian. My name is John Dixon. Though—' "'You mightn't think of it from my unassuming appearance. "'You will be relieved to hear that I am rich, sir, very rich. "'You can't go into this sort of thing too thoroughly, Pitman. "'The whole secret is preparation, "'and I can get up my biography from the beginning, "'and I can tell it you now. "'Only I have forgotten it.' "'Perhaps I'm stupid,' began Pitman. "'That's it!' cried Michael. "'Very stupid!' "'But rich, too, richer than I am. "'I thought you would enjoy it, Pitman, so I've arranged 
that you were to be literally wallowing in wealth. But then, on the other hand, you're only an American and a maker of India-rubber overshoes at that. And the worst of it is—why should I conceal it from you?—the worst of it is that you're called Ezra Thomas. Now, said Michael, with a really appalling seriousness of manner, tell me who we are. The unfortunate little man was cross-examined till he knew these facts by heart. There, cried the lawyer, our plans are laid, thoroughly consistent, that's the great thing. But I don't understand, objected Pitman. Oh, you'll understand right enough when it comes to the point, said Michael, rising. There doesn't seem to be any story to it, said the artist. We can invent one as we go along, returned the lawyer. "'But I can't invent,' protested Pitman. "'I never could invent in all my life.' "'You'll find you have to, my boy,' was Michael's easy comment, and he began calling for the waiter, with whom he at once resumed a sparkling conversation. It was a downcast little man that followed him. "'Of course, he is very clever, but can I trust him in such a state?' he asked himself. And when they were once more in a hansom, he took heart of grace. "'Don't you think,' he faltered, "'it would be wiser, considering all things, to put this business off?' "'Put off to-morrow what can be done to-day?' cried Michael, with indignation. "'Never heard of such a thing. Cheer up, it'll be all right. Go in and win. There's a lion-hearted pitman.' At Cannon Street they inquired for Mr. Brown's piano which had duly arrived, drove thence to a neighbouring mews, where they contracted for a cart, and while that was being got ready, took shelter in the harness-room, beside the stove. Here the lawyer presently toppled against the wall, and fell into a gentle slumber, so that Pitman found himself launched on his own resources in the midst of several staring loafers, such as love to spend unprofitable days about a stable. "'Rough die, sir,' observed one. "'Do you go far?' Uh, "'Yes, it is rather a rough day,' said the artist, and then feeling that he must change the conversation, uh, my, "'My friend is an Australian. He is very impulsive,' he added. "'An Australian?' said the other. Oh, "'I've a brother myself in Melbourne. Does your friend come from that way at all?' Uh, "'No, not exactly,' replied the artist whose ideas of the geography of New Holland were a little scattered. He, he lives immensely far in, inland, and is, is very rich. The loafers gazed with great respect upon the slumbering colonist. "'Well,' remarked the second speaker, "'it's a mighty big place, is Australia. Do you come from that way, too?' "'No, I do not,' said Pitman. I, "'I do not, and I don't want to,' he added irritably and then, feeling some diversion needful, he fell upon Michael and shook him up. Ah, "'Hello,' said the lawyer. "'What's wrong?' "'The cart is nearly ready,' said Pitman sternly. "'I will not allow you to sleep.' "'All right. No offence, old man,' replied Michael, yawning. "'A little sleep never did anybody any harm. I feel comparatively sober now.' "'But what's all the hurry?' he added, looking around him glassily. "'I don't see in the cart, and I've forgotten where we left the piano.' 
What more the lawyer might have said in the confidence of the moment is, with Pittman, a matter of tremulous conjecture to this day, but by the most blessed circumstance the cart was then announced, and Michael must bend the forces of his mind to the more difficult task of rising. "'Of course you'll drive,' he remarked to his companion, as he clambered on the vehicle. "'I drive?' cried Pittman. "'I never did such a thing in my life. I cannot drive.' "'Very well.' "'responded Michael, with entire composure. "'Neither can I see, but just as you like, anything to oblige a friend.' "'A glimpse of the ostler's darkening countenance decided Pittman. Uh, "'All right,' he said desperately. "'You drive, I'll tell you where to go.' "'On Michael, in the character of charioteer, "'since this is not intended to be a novel of adventure, "'it would be superfluous to dwell at length.' Pittman, as he sat, holding on and gasping counsels, sole witness of this singular feat, knew not whether most to admire the driver's valour or his undeserved good fortune, but the latter at least prevailed. The cart reached Cannon Street without disaster, and Mr. Brown's piano was speedily and cleverly got on board. "'Well, sir,' said the leading porter, smiling, as he mentally reckoned up a handful of loose silver, "'That's a mortal heavy piano.' "'It's the richness of the tone,' returned Michael, as he drove away. It was but a little distance in the rain, which now fell thick and quiet, to the neighbourhood of Mr. Gideon Forsyth's chambers in the temple. There, in a deserted by-street, Michael drew up the horses, and gave them in charge to a blighted shoe-black, and the pair, descending from the cart whereon they had figured so incongruously, set forth on foot for the decisive scene of their adventure. For the first time Michael displayed a shadow of uneasiness. Are, "'Are my whiskers right?' he asked. "'It would be the devil and all if I was spotted.' Uh, "'They are perfectly in their place,' returned Pittman, with scant attention. But, "'But is my disguise equally effective? There is nothing more likely than I should meet some of my patrons.' "'Oh, nobody could tell you without your beard,' said Michael. "'All you have to do is to remember to speak slow. "'You speak through your nose already.' "'I only hope the young man won't be at home,' sighed Pittman. "'And I only hope he'll be alone,' returned the lawyer. "'It will save a precious sight of manoeuvring.' And sure enough, when they had knocked at the door, Gideon admitted them in person to a room warmed by a moderate fire, framed nearly to the roof in works connected with the bench of British Temis, and offering, except in one particular, eloquent testimony to the legal zeal of the proprietor. The one particular was the chimney-piece, which displayed a varied assortment of pipes, tobacco, cigar-boxes, and yellow-backed French novels. "'Mr. Forsyth, I believe,' it was Michael who thus opened the engagement, "'We have come to trouble you with a piece of business. I fear it's scarcely professional.' "'I'm afraid I ought to be instructed through a solicitor,' replied Gideon. "'Very well. You shall name your own, and the whole affair can be put on a more regular footing to-morrow,' replied Michael, taking a chair and motioning Pittman to do the same. "'But, you see, we don't know any solicitors. We did happen to know of you, and time presses.' "'May I inquire, gentlemen?' asked Gideon, to whom it was I am indebted for a recommendation. "'You may inquire,' returned the lawyer, with a foolish laugh, "'but I was invited not to tell you, till the thing was done.' "'My uncle, no doubt,' 
was the barrister's conclusion. "'My name is John Dixon,' continued Michael. "'A pretty well-known name in Ballarat, and my friend here is Mr. Ezra Thomas of the United States of America, a wealthy manufacturer of India-rubber overshoes.' Uh, "'Stop one moment till I make a note of that,' said Gideon. "'Anyone might have supposed he was an old practitioner. Uh, "'Perhaps you wouldn't mind my smoking a cigar?' asked Michael. He had pulled himself together for the entrance. Now again there began to settle on his mind clouds of irresponsible humour and incipient slumber, and he hoped, as so many have hoped in the like case, that a cigar would clear him. "'Oh, certainly!' cried Gideon blandly. "'Try one of mine. I can confidently recommend them.' And he handed the box to his client. "'In case I don't make myself perfectly clear,' observed the Australian, "'it is perhaps best to tell you, candidly, that I've been lunching. It's a thing that may happen to anyone.' "'Oh, certainly,' replied the affable barrister. "'But please be under no sense of hurry. I can give you—' he added, thoughtfully consulting his watch. "'Yes, I, I can give you the whole afternoon.' "'The business that brings me here,' resumed the Australian with gusto, "'is devilish delicate, I can tell you. My friend Mr. Thomas, being an American of a Portuguese extraction, unacquainted with our habits, and a wealthy manufacturer of Broadwood pianos—' "'Broadwood pianos?' cried Gideon, with some surprise. "'Dear me, do I understand Mr. Thomas to be a member of the firm?' "'Oh, pirated Broadwoods,' returned Michael. "'My friends the American Broadwood.' "'But I understood you to say,' objected Gideon, "'I certainly have it so in my notes, "'that your friend was a manufacturer of um, India rubber overshoes.' "'Ah, oh, now it's confusing at first said the Australian, with a beaming smile, but uh, he—in short, he combines the two professions. Yeah, and many others besides, many, many, many others, repeated Mr. Dixon, with drunken solemnity. Mr. Thomas's cotton mills are one of the sites of Tallahassee. Mr. Thomas's tobacco mills are the pride of uh, Richmond, Virginia. "'In short, he's one of my oldest friends, Mr. Forsyth, and uh, I lay his case before you with emotion.' The barrister looked at Mr. Thomas, and was agreeably prepossessed by his open, although nervous, countenance, and the simplicity and timidity of his manner. "'What a people are these Americans,' he thought. "'Look at this nervous, weedy, simple little bird in a low-necked shirt.' and think of him wielding and directing interests so extended and seemingly incongruous? Uh, but had we not better, he observed aloud, had we not perhaps better approach the facts? Man of business, I perceive, sir, said the Australian. Uh, let's approach the facts. It's a breach of promise case. The unhappy artist was so unprepared for this view of his position that he could scarce suppress a cry. <gasps> Dear me! said Gideon. They are apt to be very troublesome. Tell me everything about it, he added kindly. If you require my assistance, conceal nothing. Uh, you tell him, said Michael, feeling apparently that he had done his share. My friend will tell you all about it, he added to Gideon, with a yawn. Excuse my closing my eyes a moment. I've been sitting up with a sick friend. 
Pittman gazed blankly about the room. Rage and despair seethed in his innocent spirit. Thoughts of flight, thoughts even of suicide, came and went before him, and still the barrister patiently waited, and still the artist groped in vain for any form of words, however insignificant. Oh, "'It's a breach of promise case,' he said at last, in a low voice. I, I, "'I am threatened with a breach of a promise case.' Here, in desperate quest of inspiration, he made a clutch at his beard. His fingers closed upon the unfamiliar smoothness of a shaven chin, and with that hope and courage, if such expressions could ever have been appropriate in the case of Pittman, conjointly fled. He shook Michael roughly. "'Wake up!' he said, with genuine irritation in his tones. "'I cannot do it, and you know I can't.' "'You must excuse my friend,' said Michael. "'He's no hand as a narrator of stirring incident. The case is simple,' he went on. "'My friend is a man of very strong passions, and accustomed to a simple patriarchal style of life. You see the thing from here, an unfortunate visit to Europe, followed by unfortunate acquaintance with a sham foreign count, who has a lovely daughter. Mr. Thomas was quite carried away. He proposed. He was accepted, and he wrote, wrote in a style which I'm sure he must regret to die. If these letters are produced in court, sir, Mr. Thomas's uh, character is gone. Am I to understand?' began Gideon. "'My dear sir,' said the Australian emphatically, "'it isn't possible to understand unless you saw them.' "'This is a painful circumstance,' said Gideon. He glanced pityingly in the direction of the culprit, and observing on his countenance every mark of confusion, pityingly withdrew his eyes. "'And that would be nothing,' continued Mr. Dixon sternly, "'but I wish—' "'I wish from my heart, sir, I could say that Mr. Thomas's hands were clean. "'He has no excuse, for he was engaged at the time, "'and is still engaged to the bell of Constantinople Gar. "'My friend's conduct was unworthy of the brutes that perish.' "'Gar?' repeated Gideon, inquiringly. "'A contraction in current use,' said Michael. "'Gar, for Georgia.' in the same way as co for company. I was aware that it was sometimes so written, returned the barrister, but not that it was so pronounced. Fact, I assure you, said Michael. You now see for yourself, sir, that if this unhappy person is to be saved, some devilish sharp practice will be needed. There's money and no desire to spare it. Mr. Thomas could write a cheque tomorrow for a hundred thousand, and— Mr. Forsyth, there's better than money. The foreign count, Count Tarno, he calls himself, was formerly a tobacconist in Bayswater, and passed under the humble but expressive name of Schmidt. His daughter, if she is his daughter, there's another point. Make a note of that, Mr. Forsyth. His daughter at that time actually served in the shop, and she now proposes to marry a man of the eminence of Mr. Thomas.' "'Now, do you see our game? "'We know they contemplate a move, and we wish to forestall them. "'Down you go to Hampton Court, where they live, "'and threaten, or bribe, or both, until you get the letters. "'If you can't, God help us, we must go to court, "'and 
"'Thomas must be exposed. I'll be done with him for one,' added the unchivalrous friend. "'There seem some elements of success,' uh, said Gideon. "'Was Schmidt at all known to the police?' "'We hope so,' said Michael. "'We have every ground to think so. Mark the neighbourhood. Bayswater. Doesn't Bayswater occur to you as very suggestive?' For perhaps the sixth time during this remarkable interview, Gideon wondered if he were not becoming light-headed. "'I suppose it's just because he's been lunching,' he thought, and then added aloud, "'To what figure may I go?' "'Perhaps five thousand would be enough for to-day,' said Michael. Uh, "'Now, sir, do not let me detain you any longer. The afternoon wears on. There are plenty of trains to Hampton Court, and I needn't try to describe to you the impatience of my friend. Here is a five-pound note for current expenses, and here is the address.' And Michael began to write, paused, tore up the paper, and put the pieces in his pocket. Uh, "'I will dictate,' he said. "'My writing is so uncertain.' Gideon took down the address. Count Tarno, Cornwall Villa, Hampton Court. Then he wrote something else on a sheet of paper. "'You said you had not chosen a solicitor,' he said. "'For a case of this sort, here is the best man in London.' And he handed the paper to Michael. "'God bless me!' ejaculated Michael, as he read his own address. "'Oh, I dare say you have seen his name connected with some rather painful cases.' said Gideon. But he is himself a perfectly honest man, and his capacity is recognised. And now, gentlemen, it only remains for me to ask where I shall communicate with you. The Langham, of course, returned Michael. Till to-night, replied Gideon, smiling, I suppose I may knock you up at a late hour? Any hour, any hour, cried the vanishing solicitor. Now there's a young fellow with a head on his shoulders— he said to Pitman, as soon as they were in the street. Pitman was indistinctly heard to murmur, mm, "'Perfect fool!' "'Not a bit of him,' returned Michael. "'He knows who's the best solicitor in London, and it's not every man can say the same. "'But I say, didn't I pitch it hot?' Pitman returned no answer. "'Hello,' said the lawyer, pausing. "'What's wrong with the long-suffering Pitman?' "'You had no right to speak of me as you did,' the artist broke out. "'Your language was perfectly unjustifiable. You have wounded me deeply.' "'I never said a word about you,' replied Michael. "'I spoke of Ezra Thomas, and do please remember that there's no such party.' "'It's just as hard to bear,' said the artist. But by this time they had reached the corner of the by-street, and there was the faithful shoeblack, standing by the horses' heads, with a splendid assumption of dignity, and there was the piano, figuring forlorn upon the cart, while the rain beat upon its unprotected sides, and trickled down its elegantly varnished legs. The shoeblack was again put in requisition to bring five or six strong fellows from the neighbouring public-house, and the last battle of the campaign opened. It is probable that Mr. Gideon Forsyth had not yet taken his seat in the train for Hampton Court before Michael opened the door of the chambers, and the grunting porters deposited the Broadwood Grand in the middle of the floor. "'And now,' said the lawyer, after he had sent the men about their business, "'one more precaution. We must leave him the key of the piano, and we must contrive that he shall find it. Let me see. 
and he built a square tower of cigars upon the top of the instrument, and dropped the key into the middle. Oh, "'Poor young man,' said the artist, as they descended the stairs. "'He's in the devil of a position,' assented Michael dryly. "'It'll brace him up.' Oh, "'And that reminds me,' observed the excellent Pitman, "'that I fear I display the most ungrateful temper. I had no right, I see, to resent expressions, wounding as they were,' which were in no sense directed. "'That's all right,' cried Michael, getting on the cart. "'Not a word more, Pitman. Very proper feeling on your part. No man of self-respect can stand by and hear his alias insulted.' The rain had now ceased. Michael was fairly sober, the body had been disposed of, and the friends were reconciled. The return to the Mews was, therefore— in comparison with previous stages of the day's adventures, quite a holiday outing. And when they had returned the cart, and walked forth again from the stable-yard, unchallenged and even unsuspected, Pitman drew a deep breath of joy. Oh, "'And now,' he said, "'we can go home.' "'Pitman,' said the lawyer, stopping short, "'your recklessness fills me with concern. What? We have been wet through the greater part of the day?' "'And you propose, in cold blood, to go home?' "'No, sir. Hot scotch.' And taking his friend's arm, he led him sternly towards the nearest public house. Nor was Pitman, I regret to say, wholly unwilling. Now that peace was restored, and the body gone, a certain innocent skittishness began to appear in the manners of the artist. And when he touched his steaming glass to Michael's, he giggled aloud, like a venturesome schoolgirl at a picnic.' End of chapter 8